Hart, how you doing? Good, good. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we have Dr. Bargava, who's not a stranger to us, he's been here many times. He is um, at Long Beach Memorial, he's a pediatric emergency physician, and he's been here several times, and so I'll let him take it away with neonatal emergencies. All right, thank you, BC. Thanks for having me back again. Um, I, most of you have heard me talk before, but I usually like to have like an informal approach to the talks. So feel free, like if you want to stop me at any point, ask questions, throw a hand up, uh, say, hey, I got a question. Um, and by all means, I tend to like, I like to just kind of throw a finger out and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And I also like to do like the cash cab version, like you can phone a friend, ask a friend, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do as far as like, you know, if you don't, don't feel like intimidated, this is like, oh my gosh, he's going to sit there for 10 minutes ask, expecting me to ask, figure out the answer. Uh, so the objectives for today uh, kind of kept the you know neonatal like they joke about the, and if you have any NICU experience they joke it's like you know R O P N E C it's like the three letter thing so I was like I'll kind of go with that theme and keep it simple words so yellow baby vomiting baby I've kind of done like an infant vomiting talk so I'm not going to get too heavy on this but uh, this is a, this is a huge topic neonatal emergencies and what I'm hoping to do is to kind of hit a couple of salient points of things you don't want to miss on certain kids. I'm not going to get in-depth on a lot of these topics, uh, obviously because the list is very extens uh, expansive, but I want to get a couple of salient points of things um, on each of these topics, and, um, and we won't get to everything uh, as, as much as I'd like to, but I want to, you know, if you have, like, you know, high-risk babies, which one of those kids, four-day-olds, that you're like, you know, your sphincter tone should go up a little bit when you see them come to your emergency department? Uh, BOA, birth on arrival, uh, you know, a lot of people, like, this happens. This, this happens probably once or twice a year, baby born in the bathroom. I came for chest pain or belly pain. Are you pregnant? No. You know, and, you know, 20 minutes later, uh, we need a couple docs, you know. Uh, or EMS, you know, arrivals, they're born on the rig or born in the car, and they show up to you. Great. Uh, NET, non-accidental trauma. They have yearly conferences on this where they spend weekends uh, discussing this topic. But there's a couple things I want to kind of bring up that have, you know, cases have come up along the way of things that you don't want to, you want to consider these situations. Uh, the red eye in the neonate, you know, how do you kind of approach that? Are there certain bugs? Uh, what, what, what do you think about for the differential? And the red belly, specifically the umbilical cord. So, you know, uh, we, I had a case where, uh, not knocking my uh, colleague, but there was something that I was like, ooh, he didn't know that feature of this particular entity that I think that I want to pass on to you so you do recognize this situation. A couple of things I'm not going to cover today, but time allowing, if we, the questions arise, we can kind of discuss them openly. Fever in the neonate, that, you know, it's, it's pretty much cultures and antibiotics. But if we have some time, if there are some questions that come up, we can address those. Congenital heart disease, I've kind of talked to you guys about that, I think the last year or maybe two. And if there's something in particular as far as prostaglandins or something, we can discuss those, but I'm not going to cover that today. And there's multiple other topics that I'm not going to be getting to today. All right, let's start out. So high-risk neonates. These are the ones that, you know, you should kind of, that, um, I, I think when you talk to, you know, when you talk to either A, consultants or uh, pediatricians or intensivists, there's, there's certain things that are like, they want to know these certain things. Does everything, you know, is it because some retrospective study said that, oh, these patients were higher risk for X, Y, and Z? And these are some of the things that kind of come up. So preemies, that kind of makes sense. You know, they came out a little bit early from the oven. You kind of want to know gestational age on some of the kids that come, come present to you as to when, were they, how soon early do they come out? Uh, chronic lung disease. That's a large basket term for this is probably a premature child that receives some extended therapy of either mechanical ventilation, uh, they're doing non-invasive where they're doing nasal CPAP or required large amounts of oxygenation, and now they have some lung disease to them. So they have some lung disease that could probably carry them for uh, a, quite a bit of their life, life and also playing into the fact that their genetic predisposition for asthma and other diseases might affect them three, four years out. When do you, you know, the question always comes up, when do you kind of have to stop asking questions about birth history? You know, that gets a little tricky. I guess it depends on how many devastating features they've had. I always try to hit the salient points, you know, the brain. Was there a bleed? Does the kid have a VP shunt in them? Heart, did the kid have, you know, a, some type of heart uh, defect and or surgery that was performed to them? 
bowel, do they have NEC? Was it uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, which occurs predominantly in uh, premature children? Was it medically treated, surgically treated? Uh, I had a kid that came like two weeks after having, I believe it was medically treated uh, NEC that ended up having an obstruction. So, you know, it, I kind of hit those salient points. Those are the big ones that kind of hit brain, heart, abdomen, try to figure out what things might have happened to them and if they just came off of medicines recently. So neonates, uh, prematures in particular, sometimes are put on Lasix because they tend to have a little bit of pulmonary edema with their chronic lung disease. Some are, some aren't. Uh, and if they was recently taken off of that, that might play a role if they're one week off of that. Uh, because you will see some patients who are, oh, I was just discharged from the NICU five, seven days ago. Uh, caffeine, uh, in relation to the history of apnea. There's central apnea, there's uh, peripheral apnea, there's various etiologies of apnea, but if some, some patients were recently put on ap uh, caffeine in the NICU, then that might also play a salient point into the workup as to where you think things might be going on. Um, GBS status, so I bring this up. This is, you know, you're not going to have all this information. This is, uh, but this, this also, if you have a child who's not acting right, who doesn't have a fever, and if you happen to have a GBS status, this might play your decision into to helping out to and what are the to do further investigations from an infectious standpoint. Um, traumatic deliveries, in particular cephalohematomas and NEC. Wait, you're like, what? I just told you NEC is mostly premature infants. It should probably be discovered in the NICU, and they'll probably figure things out there. There are some case reports of full-term children getting necrotizing enterocolitis, and usually what ends up happening is that they had a traumatic aphyxic event to them. They lost some blood flow to their systemic body, and then they pr present a few days later with NEC, so ischemic injury to the gut. Cephalohematoma, the reason I bring this up is, and I'll bring it up later, in the yellow baby. So they've had some damage to their skull, and now they have some blood, and there's been some hemolysis. And then hemolysis, the RBCs get broken down, and bilies excreted and continuing to collect in, this, in these children. And that's kind of a good thing to kind of pick up or, pick up or to, as a risk factor for the yellow baby. We talked about history of apnea. Lack of prenatal care and or pediatrician. Um, your spidey senses are kind of going off. You're questionable. No, nothing is black and white. I mean, you guys who have been doing this for more than six months, and you, I think now you're all seasoned in this, and that you've been taking care of patients now as physicians. And you know, yes, you'd like to say that, yes, this is X disease, Y disease. Don't think this. But there's a lot of cases out there that are, I'm not sure. You know, do you have some follow-up for some kids? Uh, did this mother who had this baby two days ago, did she have prenatal care? What was her workup? Was she followed? Is, uh, what do we know about this child? So that also kind of plays a risk. Uh, or, or, you know, and what is her support system? Will she get to be seen the next day? These things kind of help out. And this is a quick question you can ask and find out. Um, I bring this up. I'm not expecting. I, I bring this up, I think, almost every lecture that has some relevance to this. I don't want you to sit there and spend half an hour plotting every kid's, uh, the kids' weights. In our system, I'm not sure about your system, but in our system uh, with Epic, you can, it's a two clicks and you can find out where the kid is trending. So it's, it's a good assessment to see what's going on with a child. And I bring this up almost every time because I just want to pound it into your heads. Someone has thrown it out there for me. Kids lose newborns. Like, so the first, you know, as soon as they get born, they are, are, have a certain weight and they're allowed to lose 10%. They should regain it by, yeah, 10, say it again. 10 to 14 days, good. And uh, Dr. Vargas, for those of you who know him, I was hoping to get his image. So he recently had a kid who uh, was two, four, four, six weeks age, somewhere in there, neonatalish, um, was getting admitted for failure to thrive. Uh, they got some blood work and we're just going to admit to pediatrics. They noticed a little increase in the LFTs. They're like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that, that might be some type of GI etiology, got abdominal ultrasound. Um, the child then, you know, Nursing, you know, this, these things always kind of play out in these haphazard ways. Nursing finds out that, and I'm not sure how she elicited this, this was a product of a date rape. And then they start noticing, oh, look, there's some kind of, you know, looks like there's some abnormal, like the kids look really thin, and there's some notching on the side of the skin. I didn't particularly see this child, but I think there was some callus formation, or maybe they got a chest X-ray, maybe there's some abnormalities. <coughs> find out some healing fractures, kids have been having some chronic subdurals on and on and on. So this failure to thrive, hepatitis, maybe liver disease, ends up being a 
being a trauma patient, you know. So now you go from admitting to something, and then you're like, oh, we should get the CT scan, and you kind of you kind of swings one way. So the reason I bring this up is I think it's salient, and you know, it's good to keep in your mind the differential for failure to thrive, and also to kind of keep in mind that um, uh, of of how to approach them, and kind of non-accidental trauma should be kind of uh, brought into, you know, at least considered in most of your patients. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about, because I mentioned I'm not going to talk too much about, in particular, uh, infant vomiting or obstruction. But the one thing I want to, this is kind of one of those like uh, slam through points, is that, you know, if you have, this was a patient uh, who I got from the Hawaii Pediatric Emergency Medicine website that I've talked about the, with uh, radiology images. This was, uh, I think, a little bit older, two, three month old, that had like uh, some persistent vomiting, not tolerating feeds well, and has, you know, distal uh, lack of gas in the uh, distal intestines. And this patient had ended up having Malro with volvulus. And this, uh, this one was a two-week-old with, you know, you can see there's one small bubble of gas in the stomach, for the, for the most part, a gasless abdomen. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is that for the most part in pediatrics, uh, and this is very much institution-based, um, you don't have to be as aggressive about further imaging and nailing in a uh, diagnostic uh, point. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because upper GIs, for example, which may help out with the upper or with the Malro with or without volvulus, can always be done 24 hours a day. Why I don't 100% understand. I think it's you know who does it, how it, how it's done, um, and uh, and and the you know capacity having a technician available. But at two in the morning, you may not be able to get it done. So if you have a patient who has a potential surgical abdomen, do you CT a neonate and you know the the questions of radiation or not? Or do you just say, I have a highly concerning story, I have a concerning um, uh, physical findings, I have a concerning acute abdominal series, let's get surgery involved because this kid is concerning. And for the most part, that'll kind of, uh, that will work for most, for the most, most issues. And at, at which point you can decide, you know, with, with your concern as to whether, you know, uh, exploration in the OR versus further imaging is the best route for this child versus um, waiting and obtaining an image and CT's backed up three hours because of trauma patients and you know how this can you know how this can play out in real life. So I just want to kind of bring that up that you know nailing the diagnosis is not always as critical in the neonatal period if you have the right features. I did want to spend a little bit of time on the upper GI bleed of the neonate. So here's um, um, oh I was in, uh, yeah I'll come back to that. Yes, absolutely. On the X-ray two times ago, what's the yes. characteristic feature makes you determine that this is malrotation? This one in particular is not the best. Uh, this one does not slam dunk say that this is malrotation. However, and with plain films, there are the, you know, the kind of the non-specific gas pattern um, that you're kind of hoping to get. So you're hoping to get uh, air throughout. You're hoping to see air in the distal colon um, and the rectum. Uh, and this one just has a bit of a lack of gas throughout. Um, this one does not have the... Um, I mean, the upper GI was a follow-up study to this, which showed the beautiful swirl of uh, contrast that was kind of coming through here on the right side, which pretty much nailed the diagnosis. Um, but uh, this one did not, yeah, this one's kind of a nonspecific, but it's more so this with the physical findings and concerning story of this child that kind of led to the mild rotation. So and, is there anything about this x-ray that's abnormal? Uh, probably lack, lack of gas, lack of gas distally. Gas. But I'm seeing gas in the descending colon. I'm seeing a... Uh, some gas in the rectum at the bottom there. I, to me, I didn't see as much. I guess there is a s small amount. I don't know if that's stool versus gas. And to me, there's. I mean, to me, there's a paucity of gas throughout. I, I, I get that. Both right. The center doesn't have a gas in it, but I, I'm seeing gas distally, so it wouldn't necessarily make me concerned. Right. Um, that's why I'm asking. No, no, that's it's a good point. It's and it's definitely not as black and white as this okay. one. And so this, I guess this could be one image that could be refuted and be like, or uh, uh, kind of judged back and forth as okay. to, right. yeah. So it's a disputable image. Okay. Any other questions on this image? I mean, that large gas bubble, the one on our left, is that obviously, I would see that and a kid vomiting, I'd say, well, that's abnormal, I'm concerned for obstruction. Right, and, and, and that's a possibility, is like you could say that's uh, dilatated. I'm not sure if that would, I, I don't have the specifics on this one. 
right now. I don't know if this is distended uh, stomach or small bowel. I'm not quite seeing the characteristic. Definitely not seeing house stress. I can't say it's probably not large bowel. Um, probably stomach. But yeah, it is definitely enlarged in a young infant. Any other comments? Kids cry and swallow gas all the time. Absolutely. I expect it to go all the way through if that were right. the case. But again, I mean, the fact that the baby who's probably crying because they're sick has a large stomach full of air doesn't necessarily worry. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Well, no, so, sorry, say, say that one more time. The, a uh, kid who has... Kid, kids, kids who cry swallow a lot of air. Correct. And so they often have large stomach bubbles. Correct. This stomach bubble doesn't strike me as being particularly abnormal for a crying baby. Uh, this this one is on the upper limits of abnormal. This one does not. Okay. Is that the same kid? Or it is the same kid. Okay. Yeah, I think it was just two different images. I'm, I don't have it labeled as to which one is a supine versus a, this looks more like an upright yeah, image. Right. And this is probably, probably supine. I should have labeled them. Okay. No, that's good for clarification that, you know, I, I, I think it's, and like the one thing is I didn't particularly have the um, information about the, physical findings and the history on this one. And I think putting everything together would probably help uh, and would further help as to whether you would be more aggressive as to further workup versus getting surgical consultation. Uh, you know, because this one is more, uh, yeah, this is one is more concerning for a kind of a gasless abdomen. No, that's a good point. So one, 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 one of the things I wanted to talk about was an upper GI bleed in neonates. And, um, and, and uh, what, what's probably the most common reason for uh, an upper GI bleed in a neonate? I mean, here's a, here's a partial differential. And obviously, I've left something out. But then um, this is one of those things I'm hoping that, um, in a, I mean, and I have not given you much information on this kid, but this is something you should try to elicit from moms because at 2 in the morning, you can kind of simply say, okay, we're done, and or uh, I need to do further investigation. How soon is it? Because baby could have swallowed blood Perfect. So if you're having, like, if it's the third day of life, because we know now that uh, kids are getting discharged from uh, newborn nurseries at two or three days of life, they, you know, they kind of get their 24-hour uh, um, um, prenatal, not the uh, PKU studies. Uh, help me out. Yeah, PKU, another, there's a set name for those. Newborn screens, thanks. They're getting the newborn screens, and then they, they poop, they pee, you're out of there. Um, but if baby was a vaginal delivery or if there was, you know, blood the patient swallowed from mother, what's another mom swallowing blood that you can think of? Nipples. Nipples. Good. So, uh, so this is a partial list. And this is, you know, you can consider that these, some of these things would be highly concerning. Bleeding dyscrasias, uh, AVM as arterial venous malformation, intestinal duplication. Um, what's an intestinal duplication? Sometimes you get things thrown up there like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what that is. So I, I, had to, I had to refresh myself, too. I was like, intestinal duplication? Does that mean two stomachs? What is this? So it's essentially where you, you don't have two formed. Uh, and, it's, it's, and you can have a variety of duplications throughout the body. But intestinal one in particular is where you have, let's say, for example, two small bowels. And they share a common wall. So it's not completely formed walls. But they share some mucosa or there's some uh, luminins that are shared. So you can imagine that's a little bit thinner in that, uh, in that area, and that would be a higher risk for bleeds. So that could be a potential area for a bleed out. So the child who's just now starting to eat, now starting to use the mechanics of their body, that could be a bleeding source and a potential, potential depending upon the extensiveness, life-threatening uh, abnormality, although fairly rare. Um, and stress ulcers, rare. But... Uh, I think it was BC who mentioned it. Nipples, you gotta look. So grab a chaperone, uh, ask the mother, are you, you know, in particular, obviously if she's breastfeeding, uh, it's kind of the one salient points. If she's breastfeeding, open up, uh, take a look at her nipples to see what's going on, and then that's one of the most common causes for her upper GI bleeding. So that with uh, a child who, um, who, you know, you can consider, uh, and now you, now you have to kind of figure out how, how aggressive am I going to get on this child because I just told you that there's some potentially life-threatening things going on. I have a cracked nipple as a, as a great source. Consideration of an H&H versus other labs, depending upon your concerns of things, and consideration of some type of imaging to look. These, these will kind of depend upon how the child is looking to you and the story and, and, and how impressive the signs of symptoms of this particular case are. 
So you kind of have to put everything together to, to determine in your particular patient how far you're going to go. Because this is a two-week-old that you're dealing with, with frank, bright red blood coming up. Feeding intolerance. Um, so this kind of goes along a little bit with the, the GI issues. We got here a two-week-old with mild emesis with every feed, non-bilious, non-bloody, non-projectile, and feeds have decreased from three ounces to one ounce. So, um, you know, it's a young one, and, uh, and it's every single feed. So, you know, you're working a shift, and you're like, okay, I got a two-week-old who's not, uh, not feeding as well. I'm going to rule out pyloric. You get an ultrasound if it's negative. I'm going to rule out, uh, you know, that kind of how I could potentially rule out other intestinal obstructions, other types of badnesses, and then I'll be done. Vomiting, likely GERD, go home. Follow up with your pediatrician in a day. What's the problem with that? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's concern for malnutrition, so you're getting dehydration. And then, uh, uh, and what, what, you know, I, I guess the question is, like, how, when, do you, when do you say, okay, you know, because when kids don't feed, feel well, and when they're not eating, they have a little bit of gastritis, or they have uh, infectious etiology, you feel okay that, okay, they're not eating as well, they're not drinking as well. Sure, they're going to be vomiting, they're not going to be taking as much input. But what about the... Um, what about the broader differential? What are the things that we're not kind of uh, looking at? So I've told you we have a two-week-old that has emesis and feedings are going down. I guess two questions. A, the broader differential of uh, a decreased oral intake or vomiting. And B, at what age you know, do you start feeling a little bit more comfortable with, okay, the kid's not feeding as well. He still has interest in feeding. He could probably go home and see his uh, regular doctor. Yeah, so are there, one in particular you're talking about, metabolic. Me metabolic's a very broad thing of... <clears throat> so you're talking inborn errors in metabolism, so the whole breadth of that, so you're okay, there's a potential, because we have a young one who's not feeding well. What else? Sure, food allergies, formula allergies, that's a consideration. Cardiac, good. So there, is this a potential like a cardiac a congestive heart failure for which this patient's just, you know, poor heart function. He's not able to exercise, you know, because feeding is exercise in this age range. Because they have nothing else. They poop, pee, eat, sleep. That's it. So eating is, eating and crying are work. Airway obstruction. So you sometimes have to have either intra-airway or you're going to throw out specifics. Nasal, so like there's uh, atresias that can be not always picked up. There's, or you can just go even more broader and say some type of intra air, uh, intra airway obstruction or abnormality, and or some type of extra airway compression or obstruction that could be causing problems. Good, that's pretty good. So, well, you know, I kind of, I kind of made big broad differentials. So GI obstruction, you know, that's kind of the obvious. CNS disease, hydrocephalus or um, or other etiologies. <laughs> Renal disease, you know, you're thinking young, so there might be some type of either renal failure or other etiologies. Infection, uh, not, you know, I didn't really give you a whole lot of uh, information on this particular case as far as vitals, the way the patient presented. Uh, Puckett already kind of talked about uh, metabolic. And then GERD, you know, that's kind of, you know, we're not, you know, in the ER setting, uh, you don't have time to do the upper GI pH probe on every child. Um, but, you know, it's good to think about a uh, little bit more expansive um, um, uh, details about each of these. It's good to think about, you know, what other things might be going on as to why this child might be vomiting. And, and the reason I bring this up is this is the case that Yalda and I had where it was a very busy Thursday, Friday afternoon or evening, and it was a two-week-old, and the, it was pretty much the same scenario we said. And I was like, you know, at, there's a certain age at which you're like, if the child has decreased interest in feeds, decreased amount of intake, what's my threshold? You know, it's, this is very hard to say, like, you know, six weeks, eight weeks. But the younger they are, your sphincter tone goes up a little bit higher because the differential is broader. And, um, and, and the parents on this particular case happen to say, oh, I happen to see a little pooching out of the belly when the kid eats. We're like, okay, we didn't notice any obstruction or any type of masses. They didn't palpate anything. Um, and this kid was not necessarily lethargic or listless. Vitals were fine. The kid just did not want to eat. 
Uh, an ultrasound was done for pyloric stenosis. We happened to get an acute abdominal series on this patient. Anything, does anyone see anything on this one? Other than Yalda? Yeah, so maybe a little distension. You're kind of seeing gas throughout. Let me give you another image. Yeah, so kind of a big heart. So that's fairly generous. What's the cardio uh, a yeah? So what's the cardiothoracic index usually in neonatal period? So that's where you look at um, the heart across, and then you kind of come down to the largest uh, the largest uh, diameter. No, not the diameter. Sorry, the the length of the from rib to rib. That's the thoracic. So you kind of use the cardiac widest width. So it's usually sixty percent. So generous in an adult is 50, and usually it depends on the uh, uh, patient state and disease status. You kind of start getting towards uh, smaller, 40, 50%, but in a neonatal period, you're allowed 60%. This kid's pretty much, I, I, don't, have a, uh, I don't have a number on this one, but it's, it's much more than 60%. And how about the lateral? So kind of, and the heart looks like it's there. And, you know, you know, either have a, you know, either... I mean, either that's the heart or that's the heart. And if that's the heart, then there's some type of large mass back here. This patient happened to get admitted to, uh, to the NICU for, because we have a, that's just because of protocol based off age that we, uh, that's, that's how that patient got admitted there. And a further workup was in, uh, done. And let me see if this will play. Nope. No problem. So I just have a particular CT finding in which a large uh, neuroblastoma was found on this patient that kind of extended into the thorax. So this is, you know, one of those rare cases that comes along once every four or five years. But at the same time, it's... Yes, good job, Yelda. <laughs> yes, she saved him by admitting him to the proper unit. But it's one of those things where... Yeah, she did the surgery. She's, she put in the pick line. She's done all the chemo. She's done follow-up. Kudos, kudos to Yelda. But it's one of those things where the younger the child is, and if they're not interested in feeding, and if they're not, um, and if uh, if they're decreased oral intake from their typical baseline, you can't just say, okay, your ultrasound or whatever workup were done in the ED because the differential is so broad. So you know, do you CT? Do you do a metabolic workup? Do you do infectious workup on every single neonate that comes in? You know, it, that's that's just beyond the scope of what an emergency medicine physician can do. Our goal is to rule out badness, and then if, you know, as younger the age is, to bring them into the right service to get the further differential workup done. Because this could have been an inborn aromatasm. This could have been an infectious workup. This could have been one of a variety of different things. But the thing is to kind of realize when do you kind of lax up a little bit about, okay, the kid's still eating some, and there's nothing horrific on this kid, follow up tomorrow. And this kid probably would have done fine if he had followed up in a couple of days and seen somebody, and things would have been done, but y'all have saved him. No. Um, BOA, so baby on arrival. So I talked to Tyler and asked him, do you guys do nows? We don't have time to go through nows in the 20, 20, 25 minutes remaining. But I do want to kind of bring up a couple of salient points on, you know, hey, someone's working tonight and EMS calls and said, I have a 35-week, uh, mom says 35 weeks gestational age. We're ready to go. So let's just go around, uh, throw out some things that you want to tell people that I want to get this ready. Uh, let's just change the number. Let's say... Mom doesn't know what the gestational is. She has, she's ready to deliver. So we got no history. So let's just change it from 35 to no history. What kind of stuff do you want to get ready? Um, probably want to get uh, like an OB tray ready. Uh, Good. What's, a, what's an OB tray? What's, what's your OB tray that you guys have? Because I didn't get a chance to ask Tyler what you guys have here. So I haven't looked inside our tray, but it would probably be, uh, it'd probably be like the forceps. Actually, I don't know what's in our OB training. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. I don't care about OB. I'm going to be focusing on the kid. You're working with me. I'm going to say, BC, I need you to take care of the mom. Done. So he's responsible for mom. He's going to call L&D. You and I are working together. We're going to take care of the baby. So, we're, so, yeah, so baby kit. So let's get like a baby kit. Throw some things out there that you want to get ready for a baby coming, being delivered. Because I think it's good. We're going to have two patients here, right? Consider it two traumas, two medical emergencies. He'll take care of the mom. We're taking care of the baby. What else? So like a bunch of warm blankets. Uh, Good. Probably some clamps. Good. Clamps. Um, something to cut in between. Cut the umbilical Good. Line. What else? Um, suction ball. Good. Baby what else? Um, like a um, ET 
just in case we need Yes, to absolutely. Good. What else? So a variety of sizes. Usually, you, uh, how low do you go for ET tubes on kids? So ET tubes, there are descriptions of twos, and those are kids who usually have abnormal airways. So something is wrong with the airway and a two would fit in them. Usually, even the micropremies, and we're talking like, you know, the gray zone of what is viable, 22, 23, 24 weeks gestational of age, usually can get a 2.5 ET tube. So if you're RT, you're selling your RT, no one can find the BOA kit. You know, usually there's a baby on arrival kit that has all these things you're talking. So you tell your RT, I need suction, I need a 2.5 or a 2.0 tube, and a very small blade. Uh, yes, what else? Sure, UVC, uh, UA kit. Er, uh, the baby just pooped out meconium, or black tarry stuff coming out of the vagina. Now what do you want? Uh, you want a suction, the encounter suction. Um, you want the appropriate size bag valve mask and oral airway. Good. <clears throat> you want a baby warmer there to warm the baby up. Good. Uh, umbilical artery cannulation. Good. I think you guys have hit pretty much everything. And Because I, mean, I kind of throw that on there. The, oops, mech happens. Um, let me see here. BC, I think I hit the stop button. I apologize. I just hit play. So you want to you, you want to you want to kind of have an idea of. And this is two o'clock in the morning, and I just played out the scenario. Mom doesn't know. Or the other scenario was we just had this a year and a half ago, and I'm sure you guys have had this in the last five years. Baby's born in the bathroom. Baby's on the floor. Cords connected to mom. Mom sitting on the toilet seat. This will happen to you. Indemnitely, and I'm sure it's already happened here at some point. Or baby brother delivers a baby in the back of the car. So when you don't have a variety of this information, it's good to have uh, some some things available. You don't know. You can't always verify. You, you don't have the beautiful time for a half an hour to look at the OB records. How many prenatal visits this mom's had? You don't know the reliability of her date. She could tell you, oh, I think um this many months or weeks. You don't have that information. When you, as physical features, I'll kind of talk about physical features you can find on some premature babies to kind of help guide you. But I want to, you know, I want to encourage if you're like, if it's, uh, if it's a kid who's about to come, BC's taking care of the mom, he's probably getting L&D involved, we're taking care of the baby. If we don't have much information and a kid's coming, and a, you know, depending upon what EMS tells us, we may want to get NICU involved if it's going to be extreme preemie. And I'll talk to you about why that in particular. A BOA, maybe a quick wait that can help NICU and or you decide uh, uh, where we're going from here. And a warmer. Kids, neonates get cold very quick. If they get cold, then uh, metabolic derangements can start happening. Um, and they, they start to dysfunction a little bit. So it's very important to keep them warm. Do we have a BOA kit? Yeah, so I was just going to. So I've heard it referred to as born out of a sepsis. But yeah, the BOA. I actually Wikipedia. I Wikipedia it to see. I was like, BO, I know it's a BOA kit. Yeah. I was like, I wasn't sure. Yeah. So born out born of asepsis. Yeah. Dirty, dirty birth. Dirty baby. BOA. So to my knowledge, it has the clamp, the cord, the, the, the scissors. It's a big bowl, a bunch of, of towels and lap pads, um, and we have a baby warmer, which we got a new one recently, and so it's ready. It's in the closet behind 19. There's a closet there where the big ultrasound machine is kept. And on the baby warmer is the BOA kit and the umbilical catheter kit. So it should all be able to be moved out and everything you need should be there. Perfect. And usually what works out best is you get a, when you're larger rooms, moms, you know, you're passing the placenta on one side and then, you know, whoever, whichever team is taking care of the baby is working with the BOA kit and working on the baby. And then that way they're nearby. You can kind of get information, keep mom informed, and everything works out great. Yeah, and policy-wise, we're required to call the NICU yes. folks down for a resuscitation on a kid under 30 days of age. And, and, this, and, and this is a large, large part why, because if, if you're not sure about dates, if you've got a, a dirty baby delivery, there's a lot of things. You know, this is a very difficult region. My wife's a neonatal fellow uh, in Loma Linda, and I was like, you know, give me, some, give me some really good features about what you find. Let's get some pictures out there. Let's help these guys figure it out. And she's like, really? Do you really want to make that decision as to if this kid's a 22, 23, 24-week? I go, yeah, I don't. No, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a very hairy situation. Uh, and, and, and all jokes aside, this is a situation in which, you know, uh, you're either resuscitating uh, a non-viable 
fetus versus you were going to resuscitate appropriately a very extremely uh, young infant. So it's probably best to get someone who works on this particular age range the best. I would call it a code whatever, fill in the bank, code preemie, and get the appropriate resources uh, activated to help this child out the best. Some of the things she said that help her in decision making as to how, what the gestational age of this child is, is fused eyelids. So you're not able to open them up. And I looked this up in PubMed and there's, you know, it's kind of a gray zone as to when kids have fused eyelids. Obviously the extreme premature infants do, but up to 23, 24, 25, some said it's 26. So it's a little bit of a gray zone. So, you know, it's, it's there. Uh, thin gelatinous skin. I didn't find any great images, so uh, but this is just another feature. Uh, and weights. Uh, so weights usually less than 400 grams. So this is obviously not your priority to, you know, when you have an extreme newborn fetus of getting a weight, but this might be something that you might want to use as an ancillary uh, um, support vital and in the efforts to or not to resuscitate this child that comes out. So what we can see is how long the kid is. Is there right. a length below which fetus cannot be viable? Not to the best of my knowledge. I don't know if there's anything on that, but there's also the concern of like IUGR, intrauterine growth retardation, where the kid has some devastation. Some of the big ones are placental insufficiency, so the kid doesn't get enough from the placenta, hypertension, clots, etc. Infections, that can make the kid small. Mom's small. My sister-in-law just had a baby. She's 5'9", 90 pounds soaking wet. Kid came out 5 pounds, 10 ounces. He's a little guy. And mom was just tight and small. So that was probably why she came out small. Um, so it's, I, don't th I don't know medically if it's been looked at as far as like 22 weeks and below is typically this age range. But if there is potential for growth retardation for various factors, it's hard. And even this, uh, if you read, looked at the news in the last year, USC resuscitated a 20-something week uh, child that was 200-some grams. And it was thought to be IUGR or SGA, small for gestational age. So there's all these fun three, four-letter abbreviations get thrown out. So that child was thought to be viable resuscitation, 23, 24, wherever you make your cutoff, uh, but small uh, based off whatever insults the mother or the child had received during pregnancy. And these are general guidelines. These are guidelines. There's nothing hard and fast, but I would treat it. Any, anything that comes out as this, as a you know code preemie or whatever you kind of want to use in which you would call L&D, NICU would be uh, brought down to help decision making for the proper treatment of this kid. And uh, I, I've emailed BC and uh, Tyler um, the most recent uh, NOWS kind of guidelines. Um, and, it's, and it's actually this, uh, oh, so we kind of talked about bringing an ET tube and warmer. But this, and you know, we don't have, uh, for the interest of time, we don't have quite the time to go over this, but I wanted to bring up a few points. We're talking a minute. You have from birth to, to decision-making a minute. And I know that you know, the recent ACLS guidelines, even PALS is like chest compressions, chest compressions, chest compressions. But if you look at this, you have a newborn that's born. It's, you know, I want to put up their airway, airway, airway. If you have a kid who is not a meconium delivery, and we'll talk about why meconium is a little bit different, you want to clear, dry, stimulate, check a heart rate. Where's the best rate to check a heart rate, Yelda, on a newborn? Maybe like the brachial area. Brachial, good, and or art. Carotid, maybe, yeah. But the, there's a fab umbilical cord. Sounds really weird, but that thing is a highly vascular, highly pulsating region, and it's not close to chest compression and airway issues. Because if you're thinking about it, you got this small little baby, Someone could be down here checking the umbilicus, and you can, you know, you can palpate uh, fairly equally, fairly quickly, the heart rate of a newborn. So the guidelines state if the heart rate's less than 100, gasping or apnea, positive pressure ventilation. And I threw this on here: targeted preductal. So where's, you know, preductal right arm? Look at the look at the uh, P, uh, specific uh, oxygen gravities or specific oxygens, it's pretty low. So, you know, this isn't something you have to really, you have to have slam dunk, because the PDA is still physiologically open for the first day-ish. But the key salient point thing I want to bring out is airway, airway, airway. If you have a gasping, low heart rate child, positive pressure, get oxygen going. And even going, this is the kind of the continuation of it. 
uh, if the heart rate's still of less than 100, so you think about newborns, 100 to 160, uh, continue corrective. So now they're talking about consideration of an airway, endotracheal tube. Now when you get to below 60, that's when you start chest compression. So it's respiratory, respiratory, respiratory in the, in the typical newborn. Obviously, there's always exceptions to this rule, um, but this is, you know, this is something I've emailed to Tyler and BC for, further, for you guys to further look at uh, because you know, we don't have the time to kind of go through this specifically. But I did want to bring up the meconium aspirator because we talked about, I kind of brought it up that, hey, baby comes out, meconium is born. Meconium is a particular entity I want to spend a little bit of time on. If this child swallows meconium into the airway and gets into the lower airways, you can have a severe amount of obstruction, a kind of a ball valve uh, process starts to encounter, surfactant, which is kind of used for oxygen uh, uh, exchange, uh, and that can all start to take place. Pulmonary hypertension can ramp up because of not being able to process uh, air and gases as well. And some of these severe cases end up on ECMO, so extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So this is a very bad process. So um, the NOWS guidelines kind of has uh, what to do with it. But if you have a patient who's born, uh, what they used to do was that every kid who had MEC got intubated, and you intubated until their airways were clear. So you intubated the airway, you attached the meconium aspirator. This end went to the ET tube. This went and went to your suction at the wall. You put your finger right over this, this right here, and you clear it out. And typically what's recommended is two to three passes of trying to clear out as much meconium as possible. It used to be five, ten years ago, every kid got it, but now if a kid comes out and is born non-vigorous, non, uh, non, not taking breaths in well on their own, then you proceed with this. If a meconium baby comes out and there's, they're actively crying, they're moving around, they're taking good breaths in, then you can dry and stimulate and do normal resuscitation. So I think this is worth mentioning. Uh, sorry for kind of cruising over it, but are there any questions about a MEC delivery? So if you have a meconium delivery right. and they're um, not breathing the way you want them to, uh, besides just grossly cleaning them, do you still recommend as a first line positive pressure ventilation or cleaning the meconium first? No, it becomes, uh, so the scenario BC played out was a newborn, mech is in the mouth, in the baby somewhere, uh, thank you for bringing that because I wanted to bring up suction that mouth out because you'd hate for that kid to take his first <gasps> breath in and for mech to go into the airway. So get that, get that uh, mech out of the mouth uh, and initiate an airway establishment. After suctioning, towel sweeping out, um, get mech out. And then uh, ET tube pass with a mech aspirator attached to the ET tube. Um, with suction and then suck it out. If it's positive, mech coming from your airway, you have to take another, probably get another ET tube out, make another pass. And then what's typically recommended is three passes, because now you're like passing, passing, passing. You know, at some point, you need to initiate uh, positive pressure because this kid's getting, you know, he's not getting much oxygen delivered to him. So what's recommended is three passes. And so you, uh, you. All before he takes his first breath. All before he takes his first breath. Now, if, if your first pass is clear and you have no mech, then you continue positive pressure or drying, stimulating, or, yeah. But if... Uh, if using a different tube each time? Yes, because that first Three tube... Three different ET tubes? I'm sorry? Three different ET tubes. Three, uh, if the first one, second one are dirty. If mech comes out, then you have to use different ET tubes because you're not going to be able to get um, adequate, uh, adequate suction out of it. Because at two, two, five... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, be quick. I mean, because the guidelines, if you look at it, you're talking 30 seconds, 60 seconds. It's a decision. Your kid comes out, you bulb suction the mouth out. If there's mech, you bulb you suction them. Uh, someone else is working on that. Because if you don't cut the cord, the issue is that. Uh, the mark brings up is that the fact that you can start having blood starting going back to the placenta depending upon uh, perfusion of and where you know it's going to go the path of least resistance. So your concern is um, what they typically do. It's it's a I mean for those who've seen crash C sections or been involved in deliveries, it's fast 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 and either cut slash and dice. Um, but what can happen is the OB if there's a severe mech case, 
they will suction the mouth out themselves. So if on BC is taking on the perineum. So if BC was taking care of the mom, a dirty baby comes out, he's going to suction the mouth out even before the delivery is complete. Yeah. And then they will take the baby out and someone will clamp cut and take the baby over to the warmer. And then if you still have a continuous non-vigorous, non-breathing on their own, pass ET tube. So that's why it's critical to, like, you know, so they say, baby's coming on the way, what do you want? You want your OMB kit, you want the BOA kit, because time is of the essence. Because if that kid takes, takes mech into the airways, it's like a kid who's uh, a submersion injury into a septic tank. So you can make that in that same analogy. That mech is tarry, black, bad substance. I don't know the exact uh, bacterial uh, etiologies of it, but it's that, you know, it's going to cause severe devastation to the lungs. I've seen it happen, like, you know, in a, you know when, when they know it's a control and they know they have everything. You know, of course, in the OB uh, and NICU setting, they have everything set up. They have multiple ET tubes. Everything's, you know, beautifully uh, played out to, you know, beautifully played out to whatever extent. But, of course, in a busy ER where a patient comes in and things have to happen now, it's good to know where your equipment is. And uh, uh, segue <coughs> to something slightly related. Is it recommended now, this, the business of taking the baby and either dropping the baby down below the placenta to auto-transfuse it first, or putting it up, or just keeping it neutral? What's the... Oh, I do not know. I couldn't speak particularly... Have recently, you're just supposed to keep the baby at the placenta level and call it a day, or is there actually, at one point, I was right. about to drop the baby down and get a, get a little extra you know, bolus of blood before you plant I even asked my wife about milking the core, where they milk the core, but you have to be concerned about poly... poly uh, yeah. So just so. keep it at the level. Same. I hear same so level. Is there an answer there? They don't drop the baby below the level of the placenta. I mean, I think it's last year, but it's the same level, or raise them up even. Okay, so keep it neutral. Well, there's like the new movement, too, of all these like bathtub moms that are delivering in the bathtub, in the bathtub. and it's all fancy. And they're leaving the cord on for 30 minutes because they feel that the cord blood has all these wonderful nutrients. And there, there have actually been studies that show that the rate of polypycythemia vera is slightly increased, but there, none of the infants have bad outcomes from that. Because of it. So that's kind of a new trend, is the cord blood. So we need to do, do some more bathtub studies. <laughs> 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 this is a cool case that came in two months ago. So what's going on, Randy? I had this case. Oh, you did? Sorry, so not you. Sorry, gentleman in the sweater. Rod, thank you. So let me give you a little preface while you're thinking about what's going on. So this is a two-month-old, one to two-month-old child that had been having a URI difficulty breathing for about a week. And then over the course of the last day, started to grunt a little bit. Uh, uh, uh. You saw some supersternal retractions occurring as well in this child. And this is also a salient thing of OB, baby delivered, resuscitation related. That's why I'm bringing it up. So what do you see? Um, well, it's kind of hard to make up the heart, but I think. Yeah, maybe somewhere in here is the heart. What's all this business? Yeah, it looks all like bowel gas. Yeah, what is this? It's all small bowel. Yeah, so it's some type of bowel. Now, in the adult, you know, I did a little quick little list search on this. This happens all the time in adults with trauma. You know, you get a little diaphragmatic trauma injury, bowel pops up, it gets repaired. Um, but this is a one to two month old. Now, usually it's in the neonatal period that it gets picked up, either in the OB period. These kids are devastated as well because bowel pops up, lung is not developed, you know, lung, lack of lung development, badness. But this particular patient, uh, Randy, so you saw this kid, I guess, in the PICU. And this kid, I think he had like 60, 70% of lung on this side. And he must have had a small defect that was there. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, he had a small defect. URI might have triggered it off and bowel might have pooched through. <coughs> so let's say, Randy, that this kid stops breathing while you're up in it. So we actually put an NG in uh, to low intermittent well suction. The patient was uh, doing okay with nasal cannula oxygen, maintaining saturations. Uh, establish IV access in a minute to pick you. Let's say the kid gets up there to your pick you and uh, stops breathing or starts having cyanosis or respiratory distress and what you want to do some type of intervention. Did you kind of discuss what would be the things to do or not to do in that kid scenario? We didn't. I don't recall intubating the child right away. He went to surgery the next day. Yeah, so he, I think I remember he, his ED and PICU course initially preoperatively was he maintained 
non-mechanical non ventilation or non-invasive uh, support, respiratory support. But let's say you're on you're you're you know in the ICU or this baby happens to be born. This is going to be one of those fluke N of one once in a career kind of things. This baby comes in and you're like, this kid's not breathing right. Or you see the other classic things are a scaphoid abdomen. So you kind of have like a nice bellied out abdomen where like, where's all the bowel? Oh, it's up here. You shoot an x-ray and you find this. If this patient starts having respiratory distress, do not bag. If you bag, you're gonna, uh, also going to get air into the airway as well into the small bowel. There's higher risk and descriptions about perforation. This kid, you want to intubate and drop an NG, or uh, my wife calls it a sump, which I believe is a weighted NG, that allows a, um, a better uh, suction to be, it's a larger bore NG to occur. So I mean, at some point you want to drop an NG to kind of help relieve some of the uh, uh, gas in the small bowel. So this is kind of a somewhat related to newborn deliveries. We are near the end of the lecture time. I am going to hit just a couple of, uh, let me see here, what do I want to, this is hyperbilly. Um, there's various etiologies of hyperbilly. Um, I want to kind of, um, you guys, you guys have taken care of yellow babies. And, you know, here's a scenario, like, just like my sister-in-law, baby gets delivered. Uh, she's had a beautiful prenatal history, made all her visits and then some, and she comes back to the same hospital that uh, is delivering her. What do you need, what do you need to get? And so she gets discharged on a Friday and they say, oh, go see a doctor on Saturday or Sunday for a billy check. The kid's, you know, feeding okay. They show up to you because everything's closed on Saturday and Sunday. So, uh, when do you need to get what? Mervis, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, do you get the whole spiel of CBC, retic, type screen, uh, Coombs? A general check, you can do just a direct and indirect ability um, to measure. But then, if they continued <coughs> to have jaundice or unknown etiology, then that's when you might get your direct and indirect coombs and your uh, CBC to look for an etiology. And what other things from an ER, uh, so let's, you know, let, we're talking like this is a three, four day old, and um, when, would you, when would you say, oh, this may not just be physiologic jaundice, I should do more, and what more, and what are you thinking about? Like what else can cause your jaundice to go up? Anyone else? Sepsis. Sepsis. Beautiful. Thank you. So there's case reports, and uh, I think Wang out of CHLA did like a UTI hyperbilly paper where they kind of found a. I, I don't have all the details on that one, so I'll stop quoting it. But uh, but sepsis has been described as causing um, uh, hyperbilly rubinemia. Um, let me see here. I don't. I, in the interest of time, I'm going. If the child is not feeding well, not doing well, decrease interest. If you have lack of prenatal care, or not lack of prenatal care, but if you don't have the birth records, if you don't have trends, get more because you're going to you, that information may help you decide as to the uh, etiology of this of this hyperbilirubinemia. If there's any concern for infectious etiology, then you also need to turn towards the infectious route. And you know what's you know th I, I said we weren't going to get into fever and neonate, or um, um, and obviously with the lack of time, we're not going to get into that. But if you have that concern for infection, obviously if temperature is high, that's easy. You have to do the septic workup. But there's all those little extra things uh, that may lead you. And also, to be honest with you, hyperbilly kids aren't always vigorous. They're not because they're, they're, they're usually hyperbilly because either breastfeeding is not going well, they're a little bit dehydrated, uh, their bilirubin's elevated and they're just not feeling well. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. And so sometimes if you have a high enough level, consultation with NICU trying to figure out, okay, do, where should we go with this kid? Do I perform the entire thing and admit or just play and admit an observation? It, due to the lack of time, we're not going to be able to get into that particular thing, uh, how to navigate that. Um, I'm just going to hit a couple. I just wanted to mention this website, which I think I've mentioned in the past. I think there's an app for it, which, you know, there's apps for everything now. So billytool.org. Uh, this also was in Tyler and BC's email, so it's uh, kind of a pinch. It helps you out. Option one, you put the date and time, and then you put the when the blood sample was drawn and your total billy, and it tells you, I put a scenario in here, I said 72-hour-of-age baby, so it comes out to you on a Saturday morning. They're, they're 14, and that based upon the risk factors, do they need to get admitted? And you can kind of look at the AAP's phototherapy guidelines from 04, which I also emailed through Tyler and uh 
basically to kind of send to everyone. It mentions higher risk. You know, th this particular uh, nomogram is for 35 weeks and higher, and it talks specifically about the risk factors that they're looking at. Um, and th that's the risk factors. That's the paper that's coming to you guys. We want to bring this. Uh, we won't get to this, but let me go ahead and go to. Yeah. Oh, uh, I want to hit this. Um, what's this? Beautiful. What do you do for it? I, I hear IV antibiotics. Warm compresses. Warm compresses. Admission outpatient, oral IV, full septic workup, non-septic workup, and a neonate. So full septic is, you know, I think it depends on how horrific it is. But for the most part, yes. You're doing an LP? Yeah. So uh, the reason for this is because is that the it's a polymorphic etiology, staph, strep, E. coli, anaerobes, and it can get bad. So you know if it's an early, there can be consideration of just doing blood and urine cultures. So we're getting obtaining cultures, maybe pus culture, holding off on the LP. Uh, but if it's starting to get more severe, more uh, spread. Neonates are thin, leaky, non-well immuno, you know, immunocompetent patients. So you're more prone to get more than you are not to. There might be some who just do blood, urine, and um, but for the most part, and I didn't look up any solid evidence for this, so the LP is typically done on the neonatal period for most infections, and that's, and that's debatable. All right. That's just a picture of a torn frenulum, huh? What antibiotics would you start with? Uh, Clinda, uh, depending on the age, AMP, and Cefotax. And are those patients normally sick looking? Because I've had people that, you know, granuloma, they always talk about the like, granulomas are more common infection. Yes, so oh yeah. Like, oh, it's red, or there's a little bit of drainage, and you're always worried about that. But right. Are those babies normally sick appearing? Not always. No, they're not always sick appearing. But the key features are is that you have a red, hard, sometimes discharging umbilicus because by all means like uh, a newly uh, separating uh, umbilical cord and I've had colleagues like hey can you just you know it's two in the morning you know I, I just don't want to send home a kid who's got a bad belly button you've seen tons of belly buttons can you you know grab a colleague get someone to take a look at the belly button with you to make sure that it looks like a normal physiologic um, separating umbilical cord versus a potential omphalitis because that's easily a go home continue your you know, two, three times a day, two, three, three times a week washings versus you need to get admitted for IV antibiotics. And, you know, this is, like, I think, a little bit better. Yeah, this portrays a little bit better where the extension of cellulitis is a little bit more. Pus is a hard one because kids always have a little bit of discharge coming from these. So I don't use that necessarily as a uh, characteristic as much as a hard stump, erythematous stump. And this area of cellulitis is definitely like a ugh. There's like that other one, it looks like there's like a collection of pus. I mean, would you, would you ever cut into that and drain it, or do you just... No, yeah. no, just medically uh, treat and uh, admit, and uh, if, if it gets more extensive, then um, surgery might need to get involved. But I want to treat it as a simple IND. And most of the time, you actually get fairly lucky, and either they come in and there's nothing there, it looks great, or it looks like that. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, there's one in between, and you'll get holes done. But most of the time, look at it, I mean, I, I, I think I, there's, I can't think of one where I really didn't know. Most of them you guys have shown me over the years have been very straightforward. Uh, there's nothing going on here. Uh, and the one that we had, that had embolitis and looked like that. So most of the time, like you know, everything else, you'll get lucky. Uh, every once in a while, there may be a tough call. You mentioned something you're calling mist for the uh, umbilicus in the beginning. Sorry, say that one you more time. something your colleague missed regarding the... Oh, so one of my colleagues uh, thought that if there is potential for omphalitis or infection, uh, topical antibiotics such as Bactroban and uh, a follow-up in a day or so. So I just wanted to... And I didn't get to go, you know, because anatomy-wise uh, and also newborn period, anatomy, pathogens, um, um, multiple, you know, episodes of neck fascia occurring, that this is a, you know, concerning medical infectious neonatal emergency where you admit IV antibiotics consider full septic as opposed to outpatient. Yes. Briefly discussing kind of differential diagnosis for neonatal 
postnatal diarrhea and like when, when should we worry and when should we do a full roll and substance workup? Absolutely. Do I have time to? Yeah, maybe a minute. Okay. So quick word on neonatal diarrhea. Uh, if there's blood uh, and if it's watery stool, concerning. Um, if it's highly, uh, if it's watery diarrhea, you know, this, this is a tricky one because the etiology is for diarrhea, a defining diarrhea. So newborn babies have uh, yellow, greenish, pasty stools. Diarrhea being uh, more excessively watery. Um, in large part, it's still going to be most likely um, viral or, or potentially, you know, is it the formula the kid's having intolerance with? Um, and, then the, and then the differential for a lower GI bleed. Uh, I need more than a minute. But so do you have a particular case or? I was just kind of for the residents like discussing, well, you know, it might be just a, a change in formula, like an intolerance with, yeah. with the new formula. It could be a viral infection. Could be Yersinia, some sort of bacterial infection. Um, like, you know, how to decide when, I mean, because if they do have a fever with it, obviously they do cold roll at substance workup. Um, when to do a right stain, um, you know, to, to, to see if it's more bacterial versus viral, and, and when to keep them. So now you only have 30 seconds. 